Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Nicholas Paul Brysowitz. Nick is the Director of Development for the Long Now Foundation, as well as a philosopher, a musician, and a generally deep thinker across a wide range of topics. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit here in San Francisco whose mission is to foster long-term thinking, both across the last and across the next 10,000 years. Their projects range from placing metal translation disks on the surface of the moon that can translate between over a thousand human languages, to resurrecting the woolly mammoth in order to revitalize Siberia. We'll be talking to him about long-term thinking, what it means to be playing a finite versus infinite game, and how we can gain strength from meditations on our own mortality. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Nicholas Paul Brysowitz. Hi, I'm here with Nicholas Paul Brysowitz. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing great, Gavin. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining. Uh, so people may know uh, Nick from his work with the Long Now Foundation, where you're uh, the director of development over there. Uh, I know this was one of the ways that you and I met, and Long Now has been a big influence uh, in my life. And so I definitely want to appreciate you for that. And we'll be talking about a bunch of different things, uh, both long now related and uh, otherwise dive into some philosophy, talk about death today, and just super happy to have you on board. So, you know, maybe just as, as we start, maybe we can just cover. So um, what, how did you get involved in the long now? Or how did you, uh, how did you find out about it? Can you tell us that story a little bit? Yeah, those are slightly different stories. I found out about long now in 2006. Um, I was studying genetic algorithms and systems engineering at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Um, and genetic algorithms weren't really well known. And someone sent me a video about something called generative algorithms. They thought maybe this was the thing that I was doing all day, um, which it mm. wasn't. That was a happy accident, though, because the conversation they sent me was between Brian Eno, one of the founders of mm. the Long Now Foundation, and Will Wright, uh, the guy who started SimCity. And they were talking nice. about his new game, Spore, which Brian did the soundtrack for. And the soundtrack was designed with generative algorithms, meaning a simple rule set was used to unfurl a much larger space of aesthetic material. So, you know, he didn't write 100%. all the music in Spore, but he did. Uh, but he did it in such a way that he kind of created the railroad tracks upon which uh, the game would play out this music, uh, probably more music than any human being would ever have the time to listen to. And it was just a fascinating conversation. And it was my, that was my first exposure to the Long Now Foundation. Um, but, you know, I really wouldn't collide with the organization again for many, many years. Um, eventually, at some point in my life, I ended up in California and I was kind of looking for a place where I could bring my systems engineering background, but also some of my background in philosophy and a few other things all together. And Long Now was kind of looking for a person to do precisely that. So we kind of just found each other at the perfect moment in that really kind of scintillating, serendipitous moments that sometimes happens in your life, but very rarely, you know, these punctuated things where it's like everything just comes together at the right moment. Um, that was kind of that was the moment for me, and that was about a half decade ago. So I've been with Long Now. I'm coming around five years now. Very cool. For those who aren't familiar, maybe I'll, I'll give a little bit of a stab at it, and you can correct me. Uh, but So the Long Now is a great institution that tries to ask the question, 
uh, like what projects can we do that will have impact 10,000 years from now? Uh, and whether that's uh, you guys have been building this clock, sort of hollowing out this mountain and building a clock inside of it. You guys have been doing incredible work with making these translation disks so people can translate languages deep into the future if we ever lose track of it. And, uh, is that, does that do justice or how do you describe the Long Now? Absolutely. I'm tempted to just leave it right there because you did a great <laughs> job. Um, but yeah, Long Now Foundation, we're a nonprofit here in the San Francisco area. Um, and we're really trying to help people think long term. And for us, that's the context of the next 10,000 years, but also the last 10,000 years. And so that 20,000 mm. year wide period of time that's centered around this moment, that's what we call the long now. So not the now of this conversation or the now of this election cycle, but the now of civilization itself. And if you think about time that way, and if you think about the civilizational arc on this time scale, we're in the middle right smack right. in the middle of these two 10,000 year periods. And that has some implications because there's a lot of narrative out there in the world that kind of talks about how long now foundation uh, or how, sorry, how human civilization is kind of at the end of its adventure that we're in the mm. last pages of the civilizational storybook. But we're trying to take a different tack. We're trying to say, but what if we're not in the last pages? In fact, what if imagining what the next 10,000 years could be is part of making sure that the next 10,000 years come to pass? And mm. if that's true, then in what ways can we help people think about their life and their work on these timescales. And so that's, of course, where the clock comes in and the Rosetta project, which was the translation archiving project that you had mentioned. But we also have some other stuff. We have a long-term betting platform and an award-winning cocktail bar called The Interval. <laughs> yes, you we do. have a, yeah, we have a monthly- a good conversation there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so looking forward to all of us getting back there for some more good conversations. Of course, with the pandemic, our public space has been closed for, you know, basically a year now. Um, but hopefully with the vaccinations rolling out here in California, we'll be back to having beverages, cocktails, and tea together sooner than soon. Um, and then we have a regular monthly lecture series that we've been running for, God, over a decade now. And uh, we had our hands in the Revive and Restore project, uh, which was right. using genetic technology for conservation, um, famously uh, de-extincting things like the woolly mammoth or the passenger pigeon. So there's a lot of different things that we're involved in. And the general idea is we don't know how to get people to think long term. We don't know as a civilization what we need to do to get to the next 10,000 years. So we're going to try a few things. We're going to see what resonates with people, what has the biggest impact on the way we think about our place and time and our responsibilities to future generations. That's fantastic. I uh, look forward to Pleistocene Park. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I will say one of the things that I appreciate about Long Now Projects is there always seems to be two sides of it where one is, okay, this is some actual impact or some actual physical uh, disc or something that could actually help in some way. And then the other side of it is there's always a story. There's always some sort of inspirational aspect. And I appreciate that a lot. It's, well, it's, hard, it's hard not to share the projects. Um, and just, you know, before we move on, I just want to uh, appreciate that, like, the Long Now is one of the main reasons why I am in San Francisco, because I just kept coming 
uh, every <laughs> couple months to a talk. And eventually I said, this is stupid. I should shorten the distance I have to drive to come from LA <laughs> to one of these talks and move to San Francisco. So. <laughs> oh, whoa. I didn't even know that. That's so cool to hear. And I really appreciate you saying so. I'm glad that it's had that kind of an impact on your life. A hundred percent. And Stuart Brand is one of the founders of it and just an incredible human being. And I went up to him after one of the talks and just introduced myself and said, hey, I, you seem like an awesome question asker at the end of all of these talks, because that's the only thing I knew him as. Uh, and he was very gracious and kind. And uh, yeah, so thank you. He is incredible at asking questions, right? He is. He is. It's not fair. It's yeah. not fair to the rest of us who also have to be interlocutors in the world. Uh, having that standard in my mind is just constantly, it's like the horizon you can never catch. Um, no matter how many times I watch him do it, I don't feel like I'm able to absorb enough of it. It's such a cool skill set. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that you were talking about is kind of us being in the middle of uh, a bunch of different things and feeling like we, it feels very much like a critical point in history. Uh, I know I felt that. Does that resonate with you where it feels like if we get things right here, uh, things can go pretty well. And if we don't, it's not going to be so much fun. I'd argue that feeling that you're speaking to is the feeling of civilization. Mm, that, that the phenomenological experience of being in a civilization is being in a place where it could all collapse tomorrow. Um, I think civilization is something of a tightrope. And you're always in need of maintaining your balance because losing your balance would be bad. Um, so I actually think there's never mm. been a time in history where things haven't been important. And significant. And I actually think that, that that's interesting, right? There is one that's reading fair, of history yeah. that there are some moments that are just more momentous than others. Um, but you think about that, and that's also kind of a view of history that sees certain people's lives and narratives as more momentous than others. And I think as we become more conscious of the fact that there's a lot of moment in lots of different narratives, life experiences, perspectives, um, civilizational moments, um, we start to start real, you know, we begin to realize that it's all really important, including this moment. So it doesn't take anything away from what you said. I fully agree with what you said. Um, only I would, I would share that same sentiment about just about any moment in history. That makes a lot of sense. I, I've wondered about that because it does seem like both at the same time, I can easily imagine, uh, somebody standing, uh, at the edge of a, you know, balcony and thinking the same thoughts, you know, a thousand years ago. Uh, and at the same time, I wonder, like there is these trends that we see on sometimes cultures believe that there is progress happening or sometimes cultures believe that there is change happening or sometimes they feel like they're falling from grace. And do you feel like that has changed over history, the way that people think about that? Like how much this is important right now? Like how much the, the course of progress is hanging Perhaps on Perhaps I can moment? rephrase. So there's this sense in which other cultures have had different ways of looking at the idea of progress. Like some have not believed that it's happened, where we're sort of falling from grace from a golden period. Um, there's some that seem to not have a concept that the world is going to be different in 10 years than now. Uh, does that ring true to you? Or do you feel like even despite that, people have always sort of felt like this is a critical time? No, I think... Well, first off, I can't speak for what everyone's always sure. felt, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm mostly speculating on some of this. But, you know, 
I like to study historical thought, and I'm actually currently, you know, in the middle of a pretty thick book on pre-Socratic philosophy. And so it's thinking about how people thought about the world and things like change and motion. And was there change? Was there motion? Mm -hmm. Um, What were things made of? Was it all made of water? Was it made of fire, earth, water, you know, uh, and air? Like, what, what exactly are the, like, how do we understand the world? And there have been cultures that have seen a world in decline. And we have a lot of that happening today, right? Um, I think, yeah, without getting into details, there's lots of uh, perspectives that see our world in decline right now. There's also lots of perspectives that see our world on the ascent. And then there's these more Manichaean type perspectives that see our world in a nice equilibrium between ascent and descent, where things have always been this way. And I think all of these perspectives, I mean, they're interesting because they they, are, they exist, right? Their, their truth is... Uh, at, ba- at the absolute foundation, these are things people believe strongly. Um, so, so there's a separate question between what is the world doing? Is it ascending or declining or is it in stasis? And then there's another question, which is how do people perceive what the world's doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would separate those two. I, you know, it's a bit of a cop-out because it's me not really making a claim to have knowledge about whether the world is ascending or declining uh, or in stasis. But I think there's advantages of these different perspectives And I see them almost as, you know, for the musicians who are listening, I I see them almost as as modal shifts. So, you know, a modal shift in music is one in which you're kind of using the same set of notes, but you're using them with a different like key root um, such that they have a different kind of flavor to them. Right. And so this is modal kind of modal jazz is playing with these different flavors of subsets of notes. And I would say that I think like what I would call hermeneutic perspectives or like the way that we interpret what's happening in the world. I think Mm -hmm. these are modal choices. And so there's people who are just really good at the modality of decline. They speak beautifully about a world in decline. You know, I think of things like Nietzsche or Heidegger um, famously, or of course, even more famously and pessimistically, someone like Schopenhauer. But then you have the hermeneutics of progress and there's so much there that's it's important because so much of what I benefit from in the world was built on the shoulders of people who imagined that the world could be better tomorrow. You know, 100%. think of what you and I are doing right now. We are sending our voices as encoded bits of information through the air. Like mm-hmm. this is kind of a you know this is absolutely wild to think about in a larger context. But you know, you and I take it for granted, and it's mostly just kind of nice. It's convenient. It's cool. It's fun. There's a moment of being kind of besotten uh, or like just inebriated with how cool it is, you know, when new technology comes out. But after a while, it just becomes the table stakes for existence. This is just normal that you and I jumped on a call and we're recording it and editing it and sharing it with people around the world. And so, you know, all of this stuff came because somebody thought, well, we can do this better. So I'm indebted to people who ascribe to the hermeneutics of progress, the hermeneutics of ascent. At the same time, if you're making art or if you're making aesthetic choices, you're trying to build things in the world to make the world better, part of it involves a critical comportment where you're actually critiquing what's there and you're saying this thing that people think is good, it's actually not good. In fact, it's really not. It's really not good. And here's why. And people don't like critics, right? People don't like critique. I think especially my cultural experience of being on the West Coast, especially, is that critique comes off as not personable and not friendly and not supportive. And, you know, and, um, I'm originally from Chicago and in Chicago in the music scene that I participated in, 
we were ruthless with each other about critiquing our aesthetic output and our music. You know, mm. it, you just end up being brutal with your friends out of a sense of love, you know, helping them improve, helping, helping, you know, even inside of a group of people who are working on a project like you and your producer, Nick are working on, you know, when you have uh, creative groups of people, you know, critiquing each other's output or critiquing each other's perspectives is a loving way to serve the final goals of the project. And so this is more of the hermeneutics of decline. And so there's something to be said for the value of people saying, you know, things are, this, this stuff is bad, or these things are bad. And then of course, you got to tip your hat to the Manichaean perspective, which kind of sees things more cyclically, sees things in balance, sees it all being kind of it's all happening right now, kind of the be here now imminent perspective. Um, I think I think I'm personally indebted to each of these three perspectives. And these are just three of many perspectives you can have, but I think these are the three strong positions. Um, I see value in all of them. And again, I think choosing amongst them is an aesthetic choice. It's like when you're writing a poem and you're trying to figure out which word to use, it's not so much that some words are wrong or right, but that some words are stronger in this context or weaker in this context. Uh, some modalities can be stronger in a context or weaker in a context. I see it like that. I don't know if that answers your question. I know it's a bit of a cop-out, but I think it's an important pivot on the question. 100%. Well, the thing that, you know, I reflected on a bunch of things as you were sharing that, and one is it is refreshing in a sense to have a uh, more 10,000 foot view on a bunch of these things because it's so easy to get a, a caught up in conversations about, you know, postmodernism or what does it mean to be sort of uh, in dialogue at the moment? What are the pressing issues of the time? Uh, and it feels like everything needs to have been done yesterday. Um, and at the same time, operating through that lens seems to sometimes cause mistakes and cause issues and, and cause more strife than is useful. And, um, yeah. How do you, how do you think about balancing? Like I look at, you know, artificial intelligence, right. And we have these risks from AI and it seems like these problems need to have been solved yesterday and uh, global warming and these problems needed to have been solved yesterday, but it feels like maybe with some more breathing space, you can, you can, you can leverage more creativity towards these things or fix them in better ways. How do you think about sort of, when it feels like we have to solve these things on short time cycles and yet maybe we have longer ones? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, if you'll, if you'll give me a bit of leash, I've got mm -hmm. a long response to that. Please. Yeah. I think that this perspective that, that things need like hurry up and do something because we're in a, we're in a, a dangerous place is both like true. And if you know yourself and you know your physiology, I don't know about you. I so rarely do my best work when I feel like I'm already late. Right. Right. When I feel like I've, if the time has already passed for the good option. And now I just have to hustle to avail myself of a less bad option. That's right. not where I do my best creative work. It's not where I feel most in touch with my own sense of stable truth like where I feel like I'm in, in fidelity to what needs to be done. And mm -hmm. so, so I don't know if I think that's the right perspective. Um, in itself, it is a perspective of, it's a technological perspective. And by this, I mean that seeing the world as a technological problem that needs to be solved, which is kind of bound up in some of these narratives, but it's not the same thing. It's a very specific subset of this kind of, more ascent narrative is that the world is a technological riddle 
and that technology will increasingly make it better. It'll optimize it for us. It'll you know, the greatest good for the greatest number or whatever metric or optimal function you want to put out there. This idea of optimizing for the world in itself invokes the idea of technology, right? This is a technological perspective on technology. And so if we're running into issues with technology as such, like you're talking about artificial intelligence as an existential risk, which is on one hand, like fascinating space of thought and like a valid space of thought. I do think there are risks involved with this kind of thing. In the same breath, I think trying to figure out how to solve that faster or how to use technology to solve that is just more of the same. It's chasing technology with technology. And, and the issue isn't that the technological, um, let me back up a little bit. I think what I see is the problem is that we've kind of painted ourselves in a corner where everything's a technological problem, hmm. right? And I see in the discourse, people talking about all these different technological interventions from genetic technology to blockchain technology to AI, it's all going to solve the problems of technology. But I actually think that the problem of technology itself isn't a technological problem. I think it's different. It's, it's not something we fully understand. And so I advocate a perspective around technology, which is one of just more of a relationship with it, or like, this is what I would advocate, right? Um, by this, I mean, you know, when you have a healthy relationship with somebody, you don't seek to control them. You don't seek to kind of put them in a box where they are what you say they are, and they have to be that, and they can't leave the box. And in order to have a healthy, free relationship with somebody, you need to be open to them revealing themselves to you in ways sometimes that make sense and other times that don't make sense, some ways that are challenging and some ways that are helpful. All of those complicated feelings and emotions of relating, I think, port perfectly over to our relationship to technology. But we don't think about it that way generally. We think about technology not as something that we have to relate to independent of ourselves. We think of it as a man-made thing that we control, that we, and that when we have problems like X risks that come from nuclear weapons or artificial intelligence or geoengineering, that somehow uh, the solution to that frustration is just relating to it even more technologically, uh, trying to control it in, with even more advanced technology. And I actually think that maybe the answer is to not always do that. Or, you know, in one way, there's value in trying to solve technological problems with technology, but there's also value to taking a different stance um, and treating it not like something that can be boxed in and controlled. So that's a bit hairy. It's a bit of a hairy argument. I'm stealing. Any any philosophers listening right now um, will recognize that I'm stealing liberally from Martin Heidegger's take on technology. Martin Heidegger was a 20th century phenomenologist, um, kind of a controversial figure, but a fascinating figure, probably one of the most significant figures in contemporary philosophy. Um, and I think talking about technology without referencing Heidegger or with wrestling with Heidegger's suggestions about the essence of technology is really not having a serious conversation about technology. So I want to open up uh, a discussion that we're going to have about what is our role with in this moment, in this, in this, in this significant moment that feels freighted with responsibility for the future. Um, mm -hmm. 
what what do we do with these technological risks? I think one of the things is, well, let's try getting out of our standard way of thinking about it. Let's just try it. Is there risk involved with that? For sure. There's always risk in relating to somebody in a healthy manner because they could do something that you don't expect. They could do something that you don't like. Um, but it's it's also worthwhile. On the other side of that healthy relationship is all the reasons why people get into relationships in the first place. You know, whether it's relationships of community or romance, or again, whatever kind of relationship it is we have with this thing we refer to when we refer to technology, whatever that is. I think keeping the space open to not pretend that we understand everything that that is. Like, of course, yes, I know what it is. I know what technology is. We can have the normal conversation about technology, but I think there's room for a deeper conversation about technology, which isn't so quick to think that we know what it is we talk about when we talk about technology. I like questioning those assumptions. Um, One of the things, as you were saying that, that struck me was you talk about how you try to treat everything like a technology problem or try to use technology to solve a lot of these big problems. And one of the reasons why I see people being led towards that, and I see myself being led towards that in a lot of cases, is that it is uh, it is a unilateral way you can approach the problem. You don't necessarily have to coordinate with a lot of other individuals to launch a website or to build an app or to try to start a startup even. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if you have seen other, like how you think about the benefits that you get from those being unilateral solutions? And also, are there other places that you see things that share some of those unilateral uh, characteristics? When you say unilateral character, could you clarify that question? Yeah, sure, sure. So there's a sense in which if you are building a app or launching a website, you can do that mostly on your own. You might have to spend a little bit of money. You might have to hire a few people but it's not like getting a UN resolution passed on climate change. It's not like Mm -hmm. getting a whole bunch of countries signed up. And so I see a lot of people drawn towards solutions that are something that you can achieve with a couple dozen people, or at least start with a couple dozen people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that seems so easy to do using technology, I am less clear about if there's other ways that one can either do movement building or other sorts of things uh, that share that same, you can get it done with a couple dozen people. how do you think about the advantages that technological interventions seem to have through that lens? And do you see any other routes for impact that also seem to have that uh, ability to do it scrappily uh, characteristic? Yeah, this is the question, right? To what extent do we want to deal with people when dealing with people is hard? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're right. Getting a UN resolution passed involves a lot of other stakeholders and it's thornier and squishier and more mysterious than building a new app or you know anything in the technological space because the technological relationship is structured by default as such a unilateral thing you use it instrumentally to pursue your goals right there are no other right. goals involved you don't have to negotiate with other people's goals and you certainly don't need to negotiate with technology having goals that kind of animistic perspective is absurd on its face. So you're ending up in this obvious space where the only real constraint you have is time. You just, how fast can you do it? Um, That is a particular perspective. That is what I mean when I refer to a technological perspective on technology. Um, So the question, you know, is there value in having other people in your world? Uh, If you were 
making the world from scratch with a magic wand and the choice was yours whether or not to populate it with other free people who had their own goals and desires and inhibitions and uh, creative choices and aesthetic predilections, would you do it that way? Or would you just ablate all of that and have it full of robots? Or, you know, which is essentially is a very solipsistic position to be in because you'd be the only real agent. You'd be the only real being in that world. Is that the world we want to build? Uh, we got to ask ourselves that question. I think some people want to because it's easier, but I don't know if easier is better, um, mm -hmm. especially when you look on longer time scales. Um, you know, in the near term, just hacking it away and getting it done is easier and it's more efficient and it is the shortest route between two goals um, or two, two nodes on the pathway to your goal. Trying to figure out a way to negotiate this across lots of time, it's more complicated. Uh, you and I have spoken about in the past um, James Carr's book, Finite and Infinite Games. And I don't know if this is a good time for us to get into it, but it's certainly a relevant Let's time for it. us yeah, to get I was into it. Yeah, about the same, yeah. For those who are listening, uh, this book is a very short book. Um, it's maybe like, I think, just slightly over 100 pages, Finite and Infinite Games. And the distinction here in the title is that finite games are games that you play to win, whereas infinite games are games that you play for the purpose of playing another game. So you play this game such that many more games are possible. And it's a completely different perspective. For example, if you and I, Gavin, were playing a game of chess, mm -hmm. one way that I can become the dominant agent in the game of chess is by jumping outside the system and pointing a gun at you. You know, are you pointing a gun right. at me? I don't want to put you in the position. <laughs> I don't sure. want to put you on the wrong end of this <laughs> metaphorical situation or hypothetical situation. But, you know, that is a way to dominate the, the tension inherent in that game, but you're never going to want to play. We're never going to want to play chess with each other in right. that scenario. So right. it ends, it ends the run of chess games. Uh, that is one way to look at these kinds of multi-agent scenarios. The other way to look that, at these is that we're going right. to do this over and over and over again. And optimizing for that situation isn't optimizing for me winning. It's optimizing for us playing, right. which means maybe I lose a few. Maybe I have good sportsmanship when I do lose. I don't flip the table over. I don't swear at you or call you a bunch of names such that we don't end up playing again. Um, that is, I think, a again, what it's alluded to in the title between finite and infinite, uh, it's a longer term strategy for playing games. If you knew that every morning for the next 10,000 years, you were going to wake up and we were going to have to play chess, you're just going to play chess with me completely different than if you knew this is one game of chess and it's for all the marbles and that winning is the most important thing. This is also circles back to your earlier point about this being a momentous time in history. If you think about this time in history and the game that we're playing, this situation that we're trying to solve, this riddle that we're trying to unpack, if you look at this as the thing and that the most important thing is getting this right and everything else is just table scraps, then you'll play this like a finite game. Yeah. If you think that we're going to get to do this generation after generation after generation for the next 400 generations, maybe we think about this moment slightly differently. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I uh, learned about this topic through a slightly different book. It was The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, I believe is a, a retelling of the same concept. But I loved that sense. And I loved it when you started to, uh, when it starts to get applied to other 
areas. So we look at business, for example, right? And how does it look differently when somebody leads their company with a infinite versus finite mindset, right? Um, there is a difference between, and it's interesting to hear how people use different language and you can hear through the language that they use when they are talking with a finite mindset, right? When people are talking about we're number one or we're going to beat the competition, it's a question of in what game, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what is the time frame over which you're going to beat them? Um, and I'm curious where, are there places that you see that we are using a finite, one second, I'm just going to pause. I wanted to offer a little bit of clarification. So when you're talking about chess there, the finite game is the game that you and I are playing as we're sitting down and there's clear rules and there's a clear start and a clear end, uh, of the chess game. And yet the infinite game is the chess career that we're going to have. Right. And, and I want to continue to be invited to the table and you want to continue to be invited to the table. And we don't want any, uh, gunshots happening along the course of that (laughs) career. And so it's interesting to ask, how do we apply this to more sectors, this way of thinking, uh, to business, to philanthropy? Uh, are there other places that you feel like we should and can be applying an infinite mindset that we're not? Well, just think about politics, right? Mm-hmm. This is, of course, I think the the archetypal version of this, um, that if you think that in every political moment, uh, your team needs to win or we're doomed, as opposed to thinking that, well, no, we've created a system where we are passing this baton back and forth. And what really matters is the integrity of the system. Um, There's a difference between your highest goal being the integrity of the system such that we can continue to have these political battles with each other across long periods of time versus actually I'm willing to destroy the whole system just so that I can win this one thing. That would be the distinction I think that we'd all be, I think, intimately familiar with right now. Um, so it shows up in politics. I think it shows up in any relationship. Um, you know, there's always these moments where you decide how important is this micro battle? You know, you, what's the what's the pro- proverbial story about like, you know, winning battles and losing wars? Um, you know, you can win the battle, but you don't want to lose the war. And there's something that's the same kind of idea that there's other temporal horizons which you could look at for optimizing on. And if you're looking at optimizing politically on the next 10,000 years, well, then making sure that you have a stable political system that lasts will be more important to you than any kind of near-term outcome in a near-term political battle. That'll become secondary, or at least it'll be it'll be subdued to this other higher goal. Um, again, this isn't necessarily the most widespread perspective. I think in this moment, there's a lot of uh, finite game playing, uh, whether it's in like electoral politics or politics around climate change, politics around vaccines, like literally everything, everything that you could possibly find in a newspaper, you could take a lens on this and say, who's playing the finite game? Who's playing the infinite game? How could we play a better infinite game? I think is the question we could all ask of ourselves and see what role we could play in steering things towards longer term games so that we can continue to do these things. I appreciate that. One of the words of wisdom that I appreciated in uh, Sinek's book was that he expressed that it's important to have it be known that you like playing in the infinite game. 
Uh, and having that be known to sort of employees of a startup if you're doing that or to the investors of your startup uh, if you're doing that. And I liked that idea of not only spreading the word, but having it be known that one looks at the world that way, because I think it helps to offer uh, or encourage patience and other sorts of virtues around the way that one is working. And communicating that seems pretty important. Yeah. I mean, that communication allows you to coordinate with somebody, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, if you, you know, if you're in a dance with somebody, you know, you might tell them what kind of a dance you want to do, you know, so that two people can actually coordinate their, their movements. And if you and I are going to play chess for one game versus, Hey, we're in a situation where we're going to play chess every morning for the next four years, uh, knowing that at the outset changes the way we start playing. And it's a good thing to know so that we can coordinate better and just be more, more harmonious together. Absolutely. I do wonder, one of the questions I have is, you know, say that you do take a window, right? You take a four year window for a startup or something else. How does the performance compare across a team that's in a finite mindset for that four you know, year window versus an infinite mindset for that four year window? Uh, it seems a interesting thing that I hope people try to study on when those crossover points happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Uh, of course, if we think about finite and infinite, right? Uh, an infinite game is one kind of game, but a finite game then is an infinite number of games. Like you could have sure. a game that ends in four years or 40 years, or 400 years, 400,000 years. We can do that forever, right? We can pick the horizon of our finitude. So there's, you know, that's, I think, why Cars splits up this binary into finite and infinite. And you think about, let's say, the Long Now Foundation, we're talking about 10,000 years. Okay, right. technically, that's a finite horizon, it's not infinite. It's not eternity. It's not the eternal now, the nunc aeternum of like medieval scholasticism. We're not looking at, um, we're not looking at time as this finite thing in its own right. And we're like looking at other horizons metaphysically. We're looking at ten thousand years or four years, whatever it is. It would be interesting to see what the advantages are. Like, what are the uh, performance outputs? Uh, you know of something that's, you know, expressed as a four-year goal, eight-year goal, 80-year goal, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that in itself is a technological perspective on it uh, to, to stack rank things and find the Goldilocks zone <laughs> of time horizons. Yeah, I think my own predilections are towards, are more of just towards a direction, which is longer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to think that if the Long Now Foundation sees ourselves celebrating our 10,000th year anniversary, that part of our messaging that year will be to go further, uh, further than 10,000 years. I think the direction is always longer. There's something about that direction. Um, it's less of a telos or a goal. So if you were to say to me, hey, let's do a startup with a four-year time horizon, that's the telos, that's the goal. That's where we want to get to. If you said, hey, I want to do a startup and I want it to last longer than anybody thinks a startup should last. That's, mm-hmm. that's more of a directional thing. And I actually think that directional thing can be really powerful because then for people who think that four years is a good time horizon, they can they, they are welcomed into that conversation. People that think that 100 years is the right time horizon are, are, are welcome to participate in that conversation. So not everybody has to agree on the telos, on the destination. We can all agree on the direction of the journey. And that's just, I think, an easier thing to form consensus around. Absolutely. So... One of the books I read recently on leadership that I appreciated, it's called Turn the Ship Around. And it's about this uh, Navy, 
I'm going to get his rank wrong, but Navy uh, commander who gets charge of the worst performing submarine uh, in the fleet and has to figure mm-hmm. out how to, uh, quote unquote, turn the ship around. And he has this leadership style that he calls leader leader versus leader follower. And one of his main principles is that he wants his performance to be judged not by how the ship is operating while he is commander of it, but how it operates under the next commander. And that sense of how do you how do you set up systems and organizations uh, to outlast you and to uh, thrive even when you're not there. And I'm curious to ask you kind of personally, like how do you think about that in terms of long now? Like how do you set it up so that the next director of development has an even easier job than you did? That is a beautiful question. I'm very happy to answer it because it's something that I'm thinking about and that we're thinking about as a leadership group at the foundation Mm -hmm. a lot lately is, you know, the phrase is uh, kind of gets passed around, comes from a Jonas Salk quote, um, which is, you know, how do we be good ancestors? Mm -hmm. Um, One of our friends, a long now research fellow, Roman Kersnarek, wrote a book called The Good Ancestor, which is spectacular and uh, you should definitely check it out. But it's about how, do, what are the strategies for being a good ancestor? How do we develop this skill set and this mindset such that we're always entering into situations to tee up the next generation or to tee up the people who come after us? I think you'll agree. I think listeners will agree. There's a lot of readily available examples of ways in which we failed to do this. Mm. Um, and so is this something we can get better at famously, of course, the Iroquois, uh, I believe it was the Iroquois, uh, talked about seventh generation and having somebody at the, at the political bargaining table who would advocate for, you know, future generations such that they were enfranchised into the decisions that are made today. We don't have something like that. Um, or, you know, the ways in which we have them are implicit, less explicit. And there's a lot of possibility here for us to do that better. I love this idea of this book, too, where the Navy commander got put in charge of the worst performing ship in the entire Navy, because that seems like an interesting gig. Um, uh-huh. Wouldn't you think that just maybe doing nothing, you'd have <laughs> reversion uh, re- reversion to the mean, and it would come back up, and that would be amazing. And then the leader, leader, the next leader would be set up for success. Um, I think the harder thing would be coming into, coming into possession of the highest performing Navy ship and having to maintain that track record, I think that would be, and again, I think this speaks to the the larger point, which is just, even in that scenario, how does the leader of the highest performing Navy ship set his successor up for even more wild success than he or she had? Absolutely. Well, maybe I can keep, you know, I forgive me, but I, I want to keep kind of pressing, like, is there specific <laughs> things that you sort of think about? Like, is it, uh, you know, is it documentation? Is it, uh, recording yourself talking about every single important thing that you're caring about and that maybe the next person should, you know, there's this concept of just bus factor even, right? Like what happens if I get hit by a bus? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so are there sort of specific things that you kind of are looking at doing or do in order to set that up? Yeah. I mean, long now is definitely developed some pretty robust documentation processes and archival processes for both the events that we've done and various other projects that we've gotten involved in, whether it's documenting it audiovisually, documenting it textually. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do to make sure that people who come after you can kind of get up to speed, as it were. Um, so you have something like that. Those are pretty table stakes. You have just resource planning when you're thinking about how do I set the next development director up such that they can raise funds for projects that are easier to raise funds for and how do I raise the more difficult funds that'll be there kind of at, um, 
can think of it as something that exists at a lower pace layer. If you're familiar with pace layer diagrams, uh, something that Stuart Brand has developed and, and worked through. Maybe we can throw a link uh, into the wherever the podcast resources are on it. But the general idea is that some things move and ablate very quickly. Some things move very slowly. And the things that happen very slowly tend to have a lot of power. Um, and the things that move very quick tend to keep things interesting. And so uh, from a fundraising standpoint, what are the funds that are slow and powerful versus the funds that are fast and quick? And thinking about how to set people up for success in that way, um, you think about organizational things. How do you just build a bit? How do you leave the organization better than you found it? Right. Um, of course, the, anybody who goes camping is probably familiar with that ethos of leaving someplace better than you found it. And I think organizationally doing that is definitely something that's really important at the foundation. And then, and then there's all the implicit things. The you know what happens when you build a organization f- from people who all share this this sentiment that these things are important. What does that look like? There's all these ways, these explicit ways in which we're all you know familiar of the conscious decisions we're making to do this. And then there's all the smaller unconscious things, just the tiny tweaks, the things that you might not even be familiar that you're doing, but you would know that, you know, somebody coming in from a, another organization would notice, I guess maybe these fall under the umbrella term of culture, but there's also culture things about how do you build an institution that lasts? How does that influence the decisions you make and the way you make decisions? These are all like, this gets deep. You get into co- questions about governance structures and how do you manage a governance structure for the long term? How do you manage finances for the long term? These are all the kinds of questions that we tend to wrestle with pretty regularly and perennially because there's always new generations of people who are having good thoughts. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I really love about the pluralism that surrounds something like the Long Now Foundation is that you know, Long Now Foundation is 25 years old. Uh, and in 1996, when it was started, there were some finite amount of ideas out there about how to think long-term. But in the last 25 years, people have grown up, they've come into being, and these people are having their own thoughts about how to think long-term that are influenced by their interaction of themselves and their environment. And these are a lot of these are unique contributions to the discourse. So how do you capture, like how do you think long-term when what it means to think long-term is constantly changing? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it kind of, it means you have to have this conversation always. This can never be a over and done conversation where somebody says, oh, we figured it out. We figured out how to think long-term. We figured out how to plan to build an institution. It's like, no, this is something that is continually rewritten and documenting and recording and archiving what's happened in the past is as important as remaining open to the mystery of what is revealed in the present and in the future. I appreciate that. I often wonder how you guys deal with it because it seems like a tricky one is having a multi-generational organization, right? Like not only do you have to like a, continuously attract uh, sort of like talent and membership and all that kind of stuff from uh, people of upcoming generations, but you have to make sure that uh, you can ride out any cohorts that either, you know, age out or do other things. Um, seems like a difficult, uh, proposition and there's, there's very few organizations that I can think of, you know, churches and, you know, maybe a couple, uh, you got some Freemasons or a few other social organizations, but, uh, it seems like a tricky place to kind of find existing wisdom. Have there been places that you found that, or how do you think about, you know, bringing in new generations? 
Yeah. Well, mercifully, we're not the first organization that's wanted to last beyond a single generation. So as we embark on this journey to become a truly multi-generational institution, we are spinning up plenty of research into other organizations Mm -hmm. that have lasted. And there's a lot, everything from universities, um, which something like in Oxford or, you know, University of Bologna, you've got like thousand year old universities to, of course, churches, religions, you also get in the idea of like just practices, mm. certain practices have maintained their integrity across millennia. So you're looking at things like that. And then you're looking at smaller businesses like breweries, brasseries, hotels, and some of these things have lasted longer than almost any other business. Uh, you know, Japan famously has a lot of long lived institutions. And so we actually have a new project called the Organizational Continuity Project, whose entire charter is to research how other people have done it across time. What kind of learning can we develop by just interviewing and evaluating all of these other organizations that have lasted for you know, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years? Uh, maybe there's some that have lasted even longer than that that we're going to discover. But by and large, you're looking at something on the millennial time scale, And that's really interesting because you ask yourselves questions like, did they set out to do this? Was this an explicit goal to be multi-generational or did it happen as a secondary effect of some other decisions that were made? Um, you know, and I think it varies. There's there's organizations that do all of these things. And, and, and to my knowledge, there hasn't been a unified discourse or a unified research project on this. And so our executive director, Alexander Rose, has been embarking on this journey for a little over a year or two. Um, and we have a, a homepage on our site for the project, for the Organizational Continuity Project, where any interested parties can see some of what we've already learned. Um, there's a lot that we've already gleaned just from preliminary research, and we're just now on the other side of COVID going to get into a lot more of the travel, in-person uh, research and interviewing that we had originally set out to do a few years ago. We've been held up a little bit by the pandemic. It hasn't been um, a good idea to travel too much further than the Bay Area, so... But that's about to change. And so our research in this space is about to uh, amplify quite considerably soon. So I would definitely also, um, for anybody who's interested, I would just keep watching that space because we've got a lot of good stuff coming soon. Fantastic. Well, appreciate that project. And we will drop a link to it in the description. Um, Perhaps we will uh, wrap up the end of the episode with a little bit of uh, talk on uh, death and how to take some... uh, perhaps some joy in it, as as strange as that sounds. Uh, But before we do that, I wanted to just ask you, you know, is there anything interesting to share about kind of the road forward for long now? What are you looking forward to? Um, Maybe things that our listeners should look, uh, be looking forward to as well. There's so much that I'm looking forward to because we are in this really precipitial moment between our first 25 years and our second 25 years as an institution. What we're kind of Uh, calling our second quarter century. Uh, So our Q2 at Long Now is beginning. And in the beginning of our second quarter, we're looking at how to take Long Now in a, not a different direction, but in a more expansive direction. How do we become more global? Right now, Long Now is a really cool cultural organization rooted here in the Bay Area. And if you're in San Francisco, there's a good chance that you've stopped by the interval or one of our talks, or you're familiar with some of the folks that are involved with the institution. But if you're you know, if you're living abroad, if you're in other countries, you know, you may not be really familiar with our work output. You might be not even be familiar that we exist. We're looking at 
what the world needs in the next 25 years. And we're seeing a world that needs to learn how to think long-term and to invest and to build long-term with everything from infrastructural projects to just maintaining the integrity of these systems that have allowed us to have a conversation like this, whether it's the system of the internet or whether it's political systems that maintain stability. How do we keep doing this civilizational thing longer than we've ever done it? The next 25 years are offering us a really cool window of time to to do this upright in a really global and open and pluralistic way. And so we're looking at launching a number of new programs in the coming years. We're looking at just being a lot more involved at a, at a level that we haven't been able to ever before. And so I think for anybody who's interested in anything we've been talking about, about the Long Now Foundation or our projects, I would definitely advise them to check out our website, longnow.org. Um, and, and, and just with the knowledge that a lot is happening right now, and that I think in the next few years, we're going to have a lot of really cool things to it. I love it. And I love the poetry and metaphor that the Long Now so often does uh, in calling that its second quarter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's appropriate. You know, we've always been uh, advocating that people look beyond the business quarter. And here we are thinking, well, you know, quarter century seems about appropriate. Maybe when we hit the quarter millennial mark, they'll start thinking of us as short-term thinkers. I look forward to that. Um, <laughs> Me too. Well, given the fact that I might not see it, uh, let's talk about death. Um, <laughs> so maybe I'll lead in as uh, one of the reasons why this feels uh, relevant to me is uh, when Nick, our producer, and I were sitting down trying to figure out if we were going to do this or not. Uh, one of the motivations that I had was just thinking through, I'd been doing a lot of meditations on uh, death through sort of a classical stoicism lens. And it's just thinking about, okay, well, if I die tomorrow, what would I be sad about? And one of the things I'd be sad about is, you know, I've spent, you know, better part of the last decade just getting to know, you know, dozens and dozens and hundreds of sort of brilliant thinkers where it felt like their ideas really needed to be shared. And it would be such a shame if I died without helping to try to translate that into some sort of amplification or impact. Um, and, and it was sort of surprised and pleased by how, you know, reflecting on death was feeling like a motivational force towards doing this podcast. And I'm curious if, if you've sort of found that yourself and sort of what philosophies you found uh, that, that sort of speak to that concept of death well. Well, would you do this podcast if you were never going to die? <laughs> Maybe, but it might take a lot longer for me to organize to get, to get around to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, there is a, there is a urgency. I, I have one of these coins that has the memento Mori quote on it. And it um, it's interesting switching from a, oh my God, skeletons, this is unpleasant. I don't want to think about this to like uh, having a smile when you look at a coin like that. It's it's odd, but it, but it feels empowering. Empowering and, and motivating, yes. right? It, it makes you care. Um, and this is the interesting thing about death for me is that it's through death that I think we care about anything. If you were, if you were going to live forever, and I know there's people out there who, who genuinely and I think authentically and aspirationally want to live forever, if you did, if you were given infinite leash to do all of your projects or design all the things you wanted to design, live all the lives you wanted to live, then what's the, then what's the reason for caring about any of it? It's all going to happen, right? Um, eventually. Even if you just sat down to think about it for 10,000 years and did nothing, 
well, there's still, I mean, infinity is a lot longer than 10, even 10,000 years. So it is. So there is this thing about the finitude. I am glad that, you know, the people that are working on longevity, I'm glad they're working on it, you know, and and yet at the same time, it, it's, it's, it's such a small percent chance that uh, I become an immortal being, being that it seems, uh, I used to think a lot more through those lenses, but it seems without a lot of merit to try to focus on the chance that one can become immortal. Yeah. You think it, so you think it's a small chance that I will be immortal. I think that it is a small chance. Yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 (laughs) I think the longevity people would say with an attitude like that, it is. Yeah. I I mean, it's (laughs) totally fair. Right. And that's why I'm glad that there's people with a different attitude. I, I, I mean, the highest chance that I'm immortal in my mind is that uh, maybe not even us, some alien civilization comes on eventually and tries to resurrect everybody, uh, given the idea that information doesn't go away. Uh, so we'll see if that happens, but it feels unlikely. Yeah, well, th- well, this is, you know, you raised this connection between a sense of meaning or care and finitude or death that because we're finite beings who do perish, uh, that we're only here for a little bit, certainly relative to 10,000 years or eternity, that it's it's that very finitude that makes the things that we're doing, like having this conversation, or perhaps our listeners are taking a walk while they're listening to this, you know, maybe with a dog that they care about. And that dog is a finite creature that only has so much time. You know, when you spend time walking the dog, mm. how often are you thinking about you know, that there's a, there's a certain punch card number of moments you're going to spend with that creature. You know, I think about this quite a bit when I'm in interacting with pets or, you know, I'm, I'm currently living on a boat here in Sausalito and it's a really beautiful situation. And, you know, as much as I would love to think that I'll live here forever, uh, I imagine the realistic take on it is that this is a, this is a brief window in which I get to have this wonderful, beautiful experience. And so the, it motivates me to enjoy it fully and to be aware of it or to the extent that I can be mindful amongst all the other things that are going on in the world that are constantly making us less mindful of, of the moment that we're in. But, you know, I think taken to the extreme, uh, you get to kind of the more, you know, something the Buddhists have written about quite a bit, which is just appreciating this ever fleeting present moment that we're here and that even this conversation, this word, this syllable is by the time I've got it out of my mouth, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's in the past already. And so how do we appreciate it? How do we stay in this moment in a way that's just ecstatic and appreciative and mindful? I mean, it's obviously very, very hard to do. I think there are people who meditate themselves into situations where they are like very, very fully present. I think there are psychedelic trips people can go on where they're very, very aware of the melting ice cream aspect of the moment. Um and I think this tie again, this ties in with long now in the sense of, well, your now, how how expansive is your sense of now? Uh, if we think of now as this conversation, or we think of now as this year, 2021, or maybe we think of now as just the spring, spring of 2021, there's different temporal horizons on which we can think about what the present is. Mm-hmm. And what if we thought about now, this fleeting ice cream melting moment being the next and last 10,000 years, that this too shall pass. Even all of this, everything going all the way back to you know times beyond antiquity, all the way into the future when who knows it's going to happen, all of this is itself passing. And when you think about that, how does that, how does that make us feel about things like 
human civilization. We we read books when we're children about things like the dinosaurs. And, you know, children, kids love dinosaurs. I mean, I love dinosaurs when I was a kid. Were you into dinosaurs? I was, yeah. It's so cool, right? It's just insane to think about, like, skyscraper-sized lizards. It's just absolutely mind-blowing, <laughs> yep. especially given, like, you know, just so out of the what we would consider normal um, that, like, even one of them coming back is is – cause for a movie franchise right <laughs> like yeah. godzilla and so godzilla was a dinosaur right oh uh, i don't know a mutant dinosaur i don't know i'm, I'm out of myself it's not the biggest yeah. godzilla fan. <laughs> yeah. but but you you catch my drift yeah. that like well that was that was normal for millions of years yeah millions of years. Totally. and we're talking about a time period that's just twenty thousand years wide Mm-hmm. and appreciating it. So, you know, as much as, you know, the long now seems like, ha, 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 these guys and girls are thinking about, you know, stuff that's never going to happen from, you know, just way too long for the human time scale. Well, I don't know, you know, <laughs> it'll be interesting. I mean, I, again, like I hope in 10,000 years, we're still advocating for more. You know, I hope we're then talking about a 40,000 year wide period that we're in the middle of. I think that would be healthy. Um, if we if we like human civilization, we want it to keep going. Obviously, on I'm biased, partial to human civilization as part of it. So, so I think death, you know, it's our personal death. There's the death of this moment. There's the death of these small adventures that we're on, like this podcast or our current lease, or maybe our current place of employment, the city we live in. Um, you know, there's death of certain climactic things that we're wrestling with. Um, you know, certain seaside villages that are, you know, kind of staring mm-hmm. down their own. Uh, existential, uh, the the threat of their own existence. And so how do we deal with all of this, that all of it's passing? Again, there's a lot of literature on it going back thousands of years, mostly that I'm aware of in like the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. But, you know, there's obviously some in some of the other, a lot of them fall under religious or philosophical, you know, banners. But, you know, people have thought about this. And so what's the value of this? I think the value is that it imbues things the everyday, the normal, with a a weight, a gravity that is really appreciating that it's it's not going to be here. Um, there's a beautiful Japanese phrase some of your listeners might be aware of, of mono no aware. Um, please forgive me if that's not the pronunciation. I don't speak any Japanese beyond I think that one phrase. But the idea is that it's this it's this aesthetic appreciation of the beauty of the fleeting moment. And of course, in San Francisco right now, all of the trees are blossoming. If you're walking around right now, um, it is just gorgeous. And, you know, sometimes you catch yourself, the wind comes through a tree and you catch yourself in something of like almost a snowstorm of these, you know, these ephemeral little petals. And do you appreciate that? I mean, it, in a certain sense, this sounds really cheesy, right? I love um, it. No, no. But, but like, you can't, you can't escape this because I think this kind of appreciation uh, puts you in a place where you're like really vulnerable and sincere about the beauty of things. And like, you know, I think little kids are tapped into this where like you talk to little kids about something going away for a little bit and they can cry and have emotional experiences about like, you know, you're just taking away their toy so you can wash it in the washing machine. And that's Mm. like an emotionally freighted situation for a kid who is attached to a toy. Right. Um, And so there's this thing, there's, there's certain kind of childishness or, or just vulnerability with really letting yourself be exposed to the passing nature of things. But I also think it develops certain aspects of your character that strengthen you uh, and and strengthen your resolve for helping certain things last that you want to last. So you can think about, 
if you're a musician and you really care about a certain composer, let's say there's a certain piece that was written by Bach that's not very often performed, and you take it upon yourself to learn how to perform it such that it lasts one more generation through you. Um, mm. The people get to hear it and appreciate it. There are compositions out there that I think no one's playing, you know, that you're not going to hear anytime soon. And if you cared enough about that, you could take it up not only preserve it, but then continue it and pass it forward just one more generation, because that's all you can do. Um, Kind of hearkening back to our earlier conversation, you're just trying to set the next group up as best you can. And one of the ways you can do that is by preserving certain possibilities. So, you know, in the realm of music, maybe one of those possibilities is the possibility of appreciating this composer who lived hundreds of years ago, or the possibility of appreciating this composer who's contemporary. Maybe there's a Taylor Swift song that just really you know, blows you away and you decide to cover it in your own style with your own thing. Um, You know, forgive me if I'm using all these music metaphors. That's kind of where I come into relation with a lot of this stuff. But you can think of other ways of thinking about preservation, whether it's a certain philosophical school, like you're talking about stoicism. We're stretching back now about 2,500 years, maybe even more. Um, You start talking about things like Memento Mori and having certain artifacts on your person that remind you that you're going to die. You're continuing a practice that's been in continuous practice for 2,500 plus years. How cool is that? Um, And it seems like not that big of a deal, but the only way it got here to you is by an unbroken lineage of people who are doing exactly what you're doing. So it's as simple as just having that thing in your pocket means that you're taking the baton one generation further in the relay race of civilization. And when you start to see the world this way, it begs the question, what around you do you want to last longer than you? And what can you do to make sure that happens? You yourself said, you know, I have these friends with good ideas and I want to help those ideas disseminate and hopefully continue forward and develop and, and influence other people and kind of alchemically combine with other people's ideas in ways that are interesting. Well, how do you do that? Well, you start a podcast. Um, and so I think if more people asked of themselves, what do I love in the world? Like, what do I care about? Because I'm finite and that thing is finite. And how do I use my brief window of time here to extend the brief window of time for something that that is bigger than me? And I think whether that's an organization like the Long Now Foundation or a practice like remembering our own death through like Memento Mori or reading stoic texts, I think textual preservation and the practice of reading and interpreting texts is really important. There's so many different ways to do this. And I think the way to go about it is just to truly ask yourself, maybe get quiet, meditate, take a walk, um, whatever it is that gets you into the closest touch with your own sense of yourself and ask, what is the thing that I want to help last just a little bit longer? And when you find out what it is, you know, know that you can, that that's the only way anything lasts. The only way, like I'm, you know, I'm just looking around my room and I've got everything from like, got some musical equipment from a few generations ago. And the only way it got to me is because somebody cared enough to like put it somewhere safe and not let it get wet. And if they left it in a storage unit, they checked on it. They didn't just leave it there to gather dust or, you know, have the wiring get eaten by rats. Or, you know, I look at my library shelf and I see all of these books. Like, think about it. If you read Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. yeah, we got to thank Marcus Aurelius for writing this book. Thanks, Marcus, for writing your meditations. But then there's, who's the next person? <laughs> yeah. Who's the next person who thought this was cool enough to copy? And the next person who thought this was cool enough to copy? And so on and so on and so on, all the way to get here to Gavin and Nick. Like that is an incredibly huge number of people. Like you've ever watched like a CGI laden 
superhero movie and then the credits roll. And then yeah. you're just sitting in the movie theater for what feels like 30 minutes while you're <laughs> yeah. just reading all of these names from people all around the world. And you're like, you know, I think if you're thinking about it, you're like a little blown away by the scope of human organization involved in making two hours of cinema for you to enjoy. It's like, wow, it's a lot of people. And then you think about something like Marcus Aurelius's meditations and like that number of people has been involved in the book you're holding. Like wow. the credits aren't really well preserved. It would take another book uh, to print all the names of the people that are responsible for you reading that book. But, you know, so, so again, it begs the question, you know, if that Simon Sinek book that you read really resonates with you, maybe you can play a small role in making sure that that book finds more people. And of course, by mentioning it in this podcast, you have by me mentioning Heidegger's The Question Concerning Technology, you know, now maybe somebody who's listening goes and checks that essay out and it changes the way they think about their relationship to technology and relating to technology as such. And, you know, what, what are the outcomes of that? You don't really know. You just kind of pass it forward. Um, so there's a certain sense that when you do this kind of stuff and you preserve possibilities for the future, the next piece is just trusting the future is going to know what to do with it. And that's, again, that's relating to the future in a free way and saying, I don't really want to control what you do. I don't want to tell you how to be you in the future but here's some stuff that really helped me and maybe it'll help you. Maybe it'll just make you smile. And I think that's one of the, one of the most significant things we can do with our finite time. I like that. Here's something to help me. Maybe it'll help you. One of the uh, visual metaphors that was popping up for me, both on the stuff in the past and as you were talking uh, was just this idea of arcs, right? You have an arc to your life. You often have arcs to relationships, to jobs. Uh, it seems like the better you get at sort of seeing the trajectory of that arc, uh, the better you get at sort of closing it gracefully. Um, and then I feel like the interesting thing is that you you get to see the sort of overlapping of these arcs as you're discussing sort of passing these books down through history, where you know the tail of one overlaps a little bit with the beginning of the other, uh, and it is it's it's incredible both the the way that we can intersect those. And also I just try to be appreciative of like the uh, like area under the curve there. Right. You know, I think about, that's how I think about my life a little bit too, where it's like, yep, you got this arc, got this beautiful gift of this area under that curve. Might as well use it for the best. Yeah. I mean, if I can build on that, the thing I would yeah. say is that it's really interesting that like, how do we judge between an arc that has very little area under the curve and an arc of life that has a lot of area under the curve. Um, you know, there is something you think about think practices like judo, um, where the momentous move is like very light. It's a very light move, but it's, it's at this very propitious moment, right? It's just done just right. It's, the, it's a little adjustment, but just in the perfect spot. And then the whole, you know, it has massive impact. Um, mm -hmm. there are a lot of lives, I think, and a lot of artifacts and texts and aesthetic things that, you know, they may not have a lot of area under the curve, but because of their context in the symphony of arcs, they actually have a lot of impact. And so it's actually really, I think, hard to judge the value of an arc based on the area under the curve, because while it is important to have that quantitative aspect to things, I think the qualitative aspect to things is also really significant. Absolutely. Now, before we move on, I know you've spoken a lot about the philosopher Heidinger, and I haven't uh, read very much myself, but I'm curious if there is 
any lessons that you feel like people might be curious on either around death or around the human experience that you have learned from Heidegger? Oh man, I asked for this question, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Um, I do. I do tend to bring up Martin Heidegger a lot, and and it's almost this thing. I'm like really self conscious of it because I don't want to be the guy who's constantly mentioning Heidegger all the time because it's a bit annoying. He's a bit esoteric. I mean, anybody who's curious can pull up a PDF of Heidegger's and just try to read the first paragraph and then tell me how much fun that feels like. <laughs> it's he's he's famously. Uh, just difficult, effortful to read. I would argue the effort's very much worth it. So like, of course, again, I'm biased. I want to come clean about my predilections around Heidegger, but it's, it's weird. He's so relevant. His way of thinking is so relevant for the world I occupy in 2021, um, hmm. kind of being in a nonprofit that's trying to get people to think differently in, in a space that's very technology adjacent, right? So we're in San Francisco. Um, a lot of the founders of the Long Now Foundation um, have had very interesting careers in technology or around technology. There's a lot of overlap between philosophy and tech at Long Now. And so when you think about philosophy and tech, again, like I said, I think if you're thinking that thought and you're not invoking Heidegger, you're just not doing it very deeply. Um, that's a sharp criticism, but I think it'll hold. Um, because he's thought about technology very differently than almost anybody else uh, in such a way that it's, you know, it's really caused, I think, people to just completely pivot how they're approaching the problem space, how they're using language to unpack the problem itself, or even think about it, even frame it. Like there's really, it's it's hard to even get started without an assessment of some Heidegger's stuff. So I do bring him up a lot, uh, but also I ask for everyone's forgiveness because it is a bit of a niche uh, reference. It's kind of like having a friend who like talks about liking someone's earlier material, like a super hip friend with a really awesome record collection, but kind of gets annoying to talk about music to. I'm that guy <laughs> with philosophy because I end up mentioning Heidegger. Um, of course, the essay in question that I think is the one to read is the question concerning technology. But, you know, he's got a lot of stuff on death, too. Um, it's kind of spread across a lot of his work, including his his seminal book, Being in Time. Um, actually, if anybody's curious about Heidegger, I think I have a new route I would send people on, which is I recently got the pleasure of listening to Simon Creechley's um, podcast, Apply Degger, which is absolutely, it's the most lucid explanation of Heidegger's being in time that I've ever come across. I was so impressed by it. Simon Creechley is such a pleasure to listen to. He's very funny. He's very intelligent. Um, he's just a great, if you have to listen to somebody's voice talk about you know, esoteric German philosophy from the early 20th century for like 16 hours. Simon Creechley is the guy you want to be listening to. Um, and, and so it's on Spotify and I, I actually listened to it twice because I wanted to really, I wanted to dig into it before I started recommending it to people. But I do think I feel comfortable recommending it for anybody who is new to Heidegger and wants to embark on it. There is a lot on death. In fact, there's one standalone episode on Heidegger's thoughts on death, um, which it's my understanding Simon Creechley recorded it right after the lockdowns for COVID hit New York last spring. So it's also like a very resonant conversation for the place he was in when he was recording this. So I think if anybody's really curious, that one episode, if you've got like 50 minutes you want to dedicate to Heidegger on death, you could totally pick up being in time. Uh, you could pick up a secondary text like uh, Bert Dreyfus's Being in the World, which is another great resource. Um, but you know, Let's be real. 
you could also just put on this one podcast episode and probably get a good chunk of it. So I would recommend that episode on death in the apply Degger podcast. Um, hopefully we can put some links to accompany this. Um, and that would be good. I mean, to the extent that I can share directly Heidegger's thoughts on death. Um, I don't think I can do that justice here. Um, it's a really, it hangs on some scaffolding that he builds up in the book about anxiety about what it is to feel anxious and what it is, like, who is it that's feeling anxious? Um, I mean, this, man, I'm opening up way more jars than I'm going to be able to close in the remainder of our conversation together. So uh, with with uh, with my apologies and genuflections, I'm going to uh, pivot that question over to Simon Creechley, uh, and hopefully he can answer it much more adroitly than I could. That sounds great. Uh, it looks like um, looks like that's episode 11. What was the podcast called again? It's called Apply Degger, and it's uh, kind of the applied take on Heidegger's being in time, specifically that text. Um, and it, it's a good place to start with Heidegger. I mean, also, again, the question concerning technology is a brief essay that cuts to the chase on a lot of what I was talking about earlier. Um, and people have built on this. People have criticized it. It's not like a dogmatic text where, you know, that's the truth. That's the the Bible of technology and philosophy. But I do think any serious conversation about technology needs to grapple with it. And spoiler alert, almost every public conversation about technology sidesteps it completely because it is esoteric and complicated and it requires a lot of you and it requires a lot of your interlocutors in order to talk about technology through a Heideggerian lens. You got to do a lot of, again, a lot of intellectual scaffolding to get to the heart of the matter. But if you don't get to the heart of the matter on something, are you really having a conversation? You know, are we really talking about the future of technology if we're not cutting to the essence of technology? So I would argue that it's effortful, but it's the worthwhile effort we have to put in to have this conversation for real. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So bringing these things together, there is a sense in which it's interesting to think about not only the death of the individual, but death of a civilization. And I know there's a lot of sort of fears and anxieties that we both have as a civilization right now. And I know I do as an individual on trying to prevent that. And I haven't, I I feel like I haven't quite figured out how to fully justify my thoughts about uh, personal death versus civilizational death, because it just seems so much more sad, the civilizational one. But I'm curious how you've been thinking about that, or if there's any useful lenses that you can offer us about the idea of sort of civilizational arcs or civilizational death. Yeah. Um, I think maybe a useful exercise is a brief meditation on, mm-hmm. on, on what it means to think about like a positive future. And so let's just, if we, if you're, if you're down for this, let's yeah. close our eyes. Okay. And let's think about our home from the outside. So maybe we're standing on the street or on the sidewalk and you're looking at your home. And I want you to imagine that home after what it looks like after civilization has collapsed. So maybe it's in a state of ruin. Maybe there are plants growing where there shouldn't be plants growing. Maybe windows are broken. Maybe the wood is rotted away. Maybe it's just completely destroyed. Maybe it's just a mound of dirt, right? This is fairly easy for you to imagine in your mind. Now, go back to looking at it the way it is now. And now I want you to imagine what that home is going to look like in 100 years. And this is actually way harder. It's way harder. Uh, Do the same thing with your workplace or somewhere else that you know really well. 
just try to imagine it in a privative state where things are worse, where people haven't been taking care of it and maintaining it, where maybe it's been destroyed. And, and just notice how much easier that is than imagining what it's going to look like in 10 years or 100 And this is the heart of the challenge for thinking about the future of civilization. It's really easy to think about a civilization collapsing because civilizations have collapsed. Um, we can imagine everything from you know the archetypal fall of Rome, but there were other civilizations well before Rome that collapsed. Um, and you know we are in a civilization that is it's it's mortal. It's it's totally capable of collapsing. There's no we have no safeguard. We have no guarantee that we're different than all these other things, although we could be. Um, how how do we stack the odds in our favor? as it were, or how might we keep ourselves busy imagining we're stacking the odds in our favor? I think imagining what the future could be like is is the hard challenge. It's difficult, effortful work to think about what a civilization looks like in 10 or 100 years. Um, it gets even more difficult when things are uncertain, when things are up in the air, or they're tumultuous. Obviously, you know, things recently with the pandemic have been quite tumultuous, at least more tumultuous than I've grown accustomed to as a baseline level of tumult in my lifetime. And it's making it harder and harder, I think, for a lot of people to think about what the future could be like. But doing that work, doing that meditative, contemplative work of thinking about the future, not that you could live in, but that you want to live in. Mm -hmm. Like, how does how does this look in 100 years? Two friends talking about the civilization. Like, what does that look like? What format yeah. does that take? Again, that's really hard. It's really easy to think about us not having podcast software and having to go back to cassette tapes. Going backwards is easy, imagination-wise. Going forwards is really hard. Um, but that's what we need more of. And so I think when we think about the future of civilization and we think about what we can do right now to build civilization up such that it lasts, such that it endures, that it flourishes, that there's more flourishing within it. I think the one of the most important things we can do is tap into that imaginative component of ourselves and really try to sketch out what do we want? Um, what do we want technologically? You know, what kind of technologies would support the world that we want to live in? What do we want socially? What kind of social systems? Um, what my friend and long now research fellow Samo Buria calls social technologies. You know, what kind of things do we need to get to where we want to go? And how do we start thinking about them now so that we can start building them tomorrow? And so that many tomorrows down the road, we just take it for granted the way you and I are taking for granted the fact that Wi-Fi works. You know, mm -hmm. at some point in the past, Wi-Fi was somebody's pipe dream. The idea right. of doing all this without wires. And it's just table stakes existence now. So what can you imagine when you think about civilization on these longer arcs? What can you imagine being awesome and just mm -hmm. like just making table stakes existence so much cooler? And then how do we how do we start thinking about it so that we can start building it so that we can start taking it for granted <laughs> as soon as Absolutely. possible? That's the challenge. <laughs> So that would be my provocation to everybody at home. I love it. Yeah, I hope we get to take so many great things for granted. And uh, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's inspiring to think about. I wanted to just end on if there's any ways that you think that, um, you know, if people want to be uh, better ancestors for a few generations or, you know, a dozen generations or a hundred generations down the road, what sort of what sort of things might you offer that 
both kind of as a culture, maybe we should shift around um, and also just, you know, actionable things that maybe people can do to help to either support long now or, or do other things. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about our short-term culture, we've gotten really good at solving problems that are quick, right? I can get a burrito delivered to me while I'm talking to you, like sure. by sending information through the sky, right? And yeah. all of a sudden, you know, I'll be I'll be eating delicious taqueria food here on the houseboat while I'm chatting with you. We've solved short-term problems and we will continue to be really good at solving short-term problems. Um, but there's some things that take longer to build and they take longer to do. You think about things like asteroid detection and deflection or solar weather uh, detection, monitoring solar flares. You think about things like antibiotic resistance or even just thinking about pandemic response. Mm -hmm. Because these things don't happen every day, multiple times a day, like ordering a burrito, they're not the kinds of things that our civilization is currently really set up well to address. Because if you wanted to really get good at solar weather or get good at I don't, you know, I don't know, like get good at space exploration. These things are going to take not like an hour. Um, right. It's not going to take years to build a company that does this. It's going to take decades. It might even take generations. It might be a multi-generational challenge. And so how do we get better at doing things on those time scales? It's really hard because like by definition, if we're getting really good at it, we might not even get good at it inside of your and I's lifetime. It might be the kind of thing that we can only get started. Um, and so the Long Now Foundation is trying to kind of make it cool, make this set of challenges cool, where it's cool just to start working on things that are going to take 500 years. Like you aren't obligated to take it home. You aren't obligated to solve the problem, but you do have an opportunity to get it started so that somebody else finds themselves in the middle and eventually somebody else finds themselves at the conclusion of a challenge that took you know, maybe 100 years or maybe even a thousand years to complete. So how do we get better at this? Um, We're learning. Long now is learning. We don't know. Um, We've been listening to experts in a wide range of spaces talk about what they think for, again, over a decade. Um, The organization itself has been thinking about these questions for 25 years now, and we're barely started. Um, We have a lot more work to go, and we need more people. We need new people who haven't been thinking about this, or maybe they've been thinking about this, but we just haven't been chatting together. So I think the challenge for for us right now, and and something I'd invite people at home to look into is, you know, if this is interesting, um, come, come hang out at Long Now. If you're in San Francisco, you know, come visit the interval. We're doing to-go cocktails now, but eventually we'll be open on the other side of the vaccinations and, um, you know, which could be as soon as this summer. God, I hope it would be as soon as it's something that would be amazing. But, you know, we'll be hosting events. Uh, I'm going to continue to learn about this. And I want to learn from people who are thinking about this. Um, We can learn together. We can help each other learn about this space. And that's what I am finding interesting and worthwhile. And if anybody else thinks that's also interesting and worthwhile, they're welcome to reach out. Um, We do have a membership program. So at the moment, we've got like 11,000 members, over 11,000 members across 65 countries all around the world who want to think long-term, want to find new ways to think long-term and want to share whatever they've figured out with other people. So if that describes somebody who's listening to this, like that is a perfect affordance for you to come start hanging out um, in, in like the, in the abstract sense of we're all hanging out, trying to solve this thing. And then if you want to physically come hang out, 
come make a pilgrimage to San Francisco. Um, let's have a cocktail at some point. And then if anybody wants to reach out, I presume some of my contact info will be attached to this. And, you know, please don't hesitate to let me know if you have any questions or, you know, my inbox is an open door on it um, for anybody who's curious about this stuff. And I'm as, I'm also curious about learning from others. So hopefully working together, thinking together, talking together, um, we can pass that baton just one more generation ahead. And that'll be the second generation for us out of hopefully many, many, many hundreds. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I yeah. hope, yeah, I hope to continue the conversation over a long, but more importantly, uh, qualitatively fantastic period of time <laughs> and, uh, wish you the best and look forward to, uh, catching a cocktail at the interval. Thanks so much. This was such a pleasure. And thanks to Nick who produced this with us. Um, really appreciate both of you putting so much work into such an important series. Thanks. hundred percent. All right. Take care.